other than a swimming pool. Probably most everyone in here, right? So if you've ever been swimming at a lake or a creek or something like that, um, how many of you have ever jumped off something into said river or something like that? Oh, I knew Tommy would raise his hand. That's what I'm talking about. Um, so some of us have probably done that. Some of us have probably been like, no way, no how, howie, we're going to sit here and we're going to watch somebody else do that, right? Um, so when you go swimming in that way, there's times where you can look and then you can just dive straight in and then start swimming and it'll be great. There's other times where there's jagged rocks and other obstacles and things that if you dove straight in, it would not end well for you and it could go very, very bad. Um, so it's important before you jump in to pay attention to what is below you before you go for a swim, right? So this morning, uh, what I typically like to do is to dive straight into our text that we're preaching in, uh, which we will do to an extent, but um, if you've read it, if you were in family groups this past week, y'all would have read um, Hebrews 4, 1 through 13, and it is a bit difficult. There's a lot, there's a lot there. There's a lot there to unpack. Um, and so but really before we get um, swimming well in this uh, passage, there's three kind of observations or obstacles to our understanding of this text that I want us to address um, ahead of time, early on. But before we do that, let's read, let's read the text. Let's read Hebrews 1, and then we'll address those uh, kind of observations first. So uh, if you would, Hebrews 1, or excuse me, Hebrews 4, verse 1 says this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Verse six, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account." So there's three kind of observations, three things in this text, three, three words, three things, however you want to put it, that we need to address to help us understand what is happening here in these 13 verses. Um, so as I said, there are three, so I should get like five Baptist points for that because you know, all Baptist sermons have three something in there, right? Um, now, I would get a lot more points if I uh, alliterated those three, but I did not do that. Uh, you're welcome. So. Uh, the first one, so the first observation is rest. As you noticed, rest, the word, came up a lot in those 13 verses. It came up 10 times. That's a lot. 10 times in 13 verses is quite a bit. Excuse me, <clears throat> quite a bit. So we need to address that. Secondly, and we will break these down further, but just to give you the overview. That was the first one, rest. The second is the use of Psalm 95. If you were here last week, we, we in chapter 3, we saw Psalm 95 used a lot. It is used again here by the author of Hebrews, so we need to understand what's happening there. The next part, it, this kind of goes with the same, the same point. There's a lot of Old Testament knowledge that's assumed in this text. We see that throughout Hebrews because the audience did have that knowledge. So we need to understand what, what is happening in the Old Testament that the author of Hebrews is talking about and ultimately Psalm 95 and David, what he is talking about. So there's a lot of, there's just a lot happening here, both with the interpretation of David in Psalm 95, interpretation of Hebrews of the Old Testament, 
So hopefully we'll clarify that here in a moment. The third thing is the word therefore. He, or not Hebrews, excuse me, Stephen, the, a couple weeks ago, mentioned the importance of noticing therefore in the Bible because it is connecting whatever happened before that with what's about to happen now, and it's important to see that cohesion together and understanding what the author is trying to convey to us and what ultimately they were trying to convey to the original audience. So those are the three things. Rest, Psalm 95, the Old Testament, and then therefore. That's what we're going to look at before we really get going in the text to help us understand it once we get there. So the first thing, the therefore. Why is the there, or well, how'd that go? Why is the there, therefore, or something like that? Y'all know what I'm talking about. I just messed it up. But um, what is it there for? There it is, something like that. Um, last week, Gabe uh, preached at the end of chapter 3, and he talked a lot about the perseverance of the saints us as saints persevering to the end. And he said, all true regenerate believers will absolutely persevere to the end. We will. That's very important for us to understand. So let's look back at chapter 3, verse 16, those last couple verses of that chapter to understand what's happening there, to understand why the author of Hebrews put the word therefore where he did. So look with me at verse 16 in chapter 3. It says this, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses, and with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who are disobedient? Verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, it's that last, that last verse, verse 19. Look at, look, look at it with me again. It says this. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And then verse 1 of chapter 4 says, therefore, and then it continues. It's important for us to understand what is happening in that, in that passage. So somebody, in the, according to this passage, according to the end of chapter 3, somebody rebelled, right? Verse 16, those who heard and yet rebelled, Okay, we see Egypt, we see Moses, we see 40 years, we see wilderness, we see a lot of important words. The author of Hebrews is pointing back to the wilderness. So that leads to the next point for us to kind of, we're just going to kind of subsequently move through. What is the author of Hebrews trying to say with the Old Testament? Again, with the word therefore, now we're seeing, okay, when we look back, now we're seeing there's something happening in the Old Testament that's really important for us to understand. What is it? So a brief history of, of, uh, of Israel uh, leading up to this point with what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Uh, we're just going to kind of walk through that briefly. Abraham, God called Abraham to, um, to be the father of many nations. He's going to bless him through his offspring to be the father of many nations. He fathered uh, Isaac, who then fathered Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons who, were, who became the, 12, uh, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So one of those sons, Joseph... Okay, we're just kind of moving down the lineage there. Joseph, one of the 12 sons, was sold into slavery into Egypt by his brothers. And ultimately, through God's providence, he moved up and was second in command in all of Egypt. There was a famine in the land, so the rest of his family came to Egypt for food. And ultimately, again, with God's providence, came together as a family, realized uh, it was Joseph. They had this um, family reunion that the brothers thought was going to go really poorly, but it didn't. Uh, again, God's providence. And so ultimately, the family came, lived in Egypt, and over the course of several generations, God blessed Israel, who was, who was in the process of becoming a nation at this point, and they were reproducing so quickly that they were about to overtake Egypt in size, so they were growing really quickly over this span of time. Egypt then got worried and concerned, so they were like, we're going to put them in slavery, which they did. So then they lived in slavery for a long time, but they were still reproducing really quickly. And then it got to the point where God raised up Moses to then go back into Egypt to lead God's people out to fulfill the promises that God gave to Abraham and to start that process. So he sent Moses back in. You probably heard about the plagues and the different things that happened in Egypt that ultimately led, uh, through, you know, through Moses, led the people out of slavery. They then got to the Red Sea. Gabe talked about this some last week with the Exodus, kind of the Exodus moment. 
Uh, they got to the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea. Israel walked across on dry land. And then uh, Egypt's army was coming in. It was like, we're gonna, we changed our mind. And God was like, nope. And then washed them away uh, and broke down the Red Sea and made it flow again. So they just experienced that, okay? Not, I mean, literally just not long at all from the point that the author of Hebrews is talking about, which we're about to get to. They got to the Mount Sinai. Then they received the law from the Lord, the Ten Commandments, um, the instructions on the tabernacle, which we talked about back when we preached on Leviticus. They got the Levitical laws, all these different kinds of things. And then it was time to move to the promised land, okay? That's where they were ultimately heading, is to the land of promise. And so they picked up, and God led them in that direction. They got to the edge of the land. They sent a group in, a group of spies. Uh, I would call them cavalry scouts, which is, I was a cavalry scout back in the day. These were the first ones. Um, they didn't do too well on their mission. Uh, they did gather information, but it didn't go too well. But either way, they were the first ones, so go Cav. Um, but anyway, they gave a report. They went into land. You know, they got eyes on target. They were like, oh boy, these, these guys are big. They're strong, fortified cities. Ain't no way, no how we're going we're gonna to take this. They come back. They give the report to Moses. They're like, nope, we got to go back to Egypt. We got to go back to slavery. I mean, this is, this is just not going to happen. This, this looks really tough. Well, that's not good, right? God, didn't, God told them that they were going to go into the land of promise, and yet they were like, nope, mate, there's no way. Two men, which Gabe talked about last week, two made it into the land of promise. That was over 20. After 40 years in the wilderness, that's what happened after this. God judged them because of their disobedience, because of their unbelief. The men in that party, in that group, Numbers 14, if you want to go read it this afternoon, those, those men were struck dead by the plague immediately when God came and gave judgment. Everybody except for Caleb and, and Joshua. Serious. What took them, what was supposed to take them about seven days, a week or less, a little less, I can't remember the exact number, but it was less than a week or a week. It took 40 years. 40 years. What was supposed to take about a week to, to get there. They wandered in the wilderness 40 years until, all, until everybody died except for Caleb and, Joshua, or, yep, Caleb and Joshua and anyone who was under 20 when that happened. Serious. They rebelled. We saw at the end of chapter 3, they heard and yet they rebelled. All those who left Egypt, led by Moses, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years in the wilderness? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? They fell in the wilderness because they received God's judgment, because they did not believe and they did not obey the Lord. Even though they literally had just crossed the Red Sea. They were there. They saw this massive sea split right down the middle. They walked on dry land. It crashed down on the army that was pursuing them. God dropped manna from heaven, literally bread from heaven, came out every morning in the dew. And a number of other things that just happened within this span, short span of time, and yet they rebelled, they didn't believe, they didn't trust in the promises of God. They did not enter God's rest, which we will get to more in a moment. They didn't do it. They didn't believe, they didn't obey. So they did not enter and they received God's judgment. Two people made it in that were over 20, two. So that, that is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. A very serious moment at the edge of the land of promise. They were about to enter. God was going to deliver them into the land of promise. They were going to take it and it was going to be great. But they did not obey. They did not listen. They did not believe. They did not trust in his promises. So they did not enter. It's very, very serious. And so that, that's kind of, we're going to see this in a moment. I'm going to go ahead and talk about it. There's a sense of urgency in this passage that I hope that we see as we start to move through it here in a moment. There is a sense of urgency that we cannot miss as we go through this as believers. But before we get there, the last, the last kind of observation point I wanted us to talk about is a rest. Rest was used a lot in this passage. What does that mean? Well, it's not laying on the couch and watching football all day. It's not, we all love football, but that's not what it is, okay? It's not laying on the couch and watching CrossFit all day. It's not laying on the couch and watching whatever. It's not 
taking a nap all the time. It's not, you know, a vacation. Now, it's a lot of those things can be good things, right? They can be helpful in helping us physically rest and various things, but that's not the ultimate definition of what God is talking about here. That is not what he is trying to convey for us to go lay on the couch and take a nap, and that is how we're going to rest. Nor were they saying, go enter God's rest in the land of promise with the, the Old Testament. They weren't saying, go do that, and then go throw the football around every day for the rest of your life or go collect seashells at the beach. It's not what's happening, and we'll get more into that at a moment. So in this passage, something that's important for us to see, and we will see it as we go through, is rest is used and referred to in the present, so in the present sense for us, that we can experience God's rest now, but at the same time, it has a future, a look to the future, to the consummation of all things to the future of Christ's return, to the future of us going to heaven as believers. There, there is that sense, the eschatological rest is another word that you could use there. So that there's a sense as we go through, that it's gonna bounce between a rest that we have with the Lord now in our walk, and then also looking to the final future fully realized rest with God forever. So that's a balance that we're gonna have to, we're gonna have, to have as we go and as we unpack because we can experience God's rest now. That looks like trusting in the promises of God in all that we do. Trusting in the promises of God by faith that he is who he says he is, that he's going to do what he said he was going to do, and that we are to faithfully walk in them and do it, to rest in him. If, read Numbers 14 when you go home. Look at how Caleb responded. I wanted to do it here, but it would have taken too much time. Read how Caleb responded to, to Israel when he gave his, his spiel. He, he literally was like, guys, we can, we can take this land. It's gonna, he essentially said it's going to be a piece of cake in, his, in the Hebrew. Essentially, is kind of what he was getting at. We can do it. He only believed that because he, tra- he was trusting in the promises of God that what God said he would do, he would absolutely do it. That is what rest looks like. We have to trust in the Lord and believe, and actually believe it's true, and then walk in it. And we will unpack that more, but that's just kind of the introductory part of that, and we'll see what that looks like. So as, with all of that being said, with those um, three things, those observations to take place, now let's start moving through the text and see what's, see what's going on here. So verse 1 of chapter 4 says this. Let's read it one more time. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Notice the beginning. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. The promise of entering God's rest still stands for us today. Now let us fear. There is a sense of urgency throughout this passage. Let us fear. There should be a healthy amount of fear for the Lord in our life. We should fear the Lord. It's urgent. Throughout, let us fear. The good news came to Israel just as it has come to us. Verse 2, for the good news came to to them and now has come to us. For us, our understanding of that is the gospel, that Christ, the Son of God, came into the world, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life that we couldn't live. He went to the cross willingly to die on the cross for our sins, to spill his blood, to atone for our sins, and then he was raised again on the third day, that he rose again on the third day in glory and is now, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. That is the good news for us, that we must repent and believe. It says here that they too heard the good news, the good news of promise, that they were to trust in the promise of God to enter the land, that they were to trust in the promises of God and what he has said in his word that they had at that time but they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They didn't believe. They had unbelief. They were disobedient. 
a room this size is going to have some that have had an exodus moment, like Abe talked about last week, that, have, that has had at some point some sort of spiritual encounter with God, but you do not, you do not submit to him, you have not been born again, and you, do, you have not repented and believed in him, and you are not his. That is the reality that we have. There is a sense of urgency for all of us to take a moment and to evaluate this morning where we stand before the Lord. I'm not saying this to make everybody in here freak out about their salvation. That is not the point at all. Many of you know that you are a believer, and that is great, by the fruit, by many other things that we could talk about. But there are some, there's going to be some in here that have had that encounter, but do not believe in the Lord, that have not given their life to the Lord, who do not trust in the promises of God. That is the reality that we have this morning. That is the urgency that we have this morning. We should be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We must take this seriously. We love and serve a great, mighty, holy, just, and loving God. And our response to him should be reverence, awe, and fear. There should be a healthy dose of all three of those things. As we pursue him, as we seek to obey him, as we seek to love him and to know him more and ultimately glorify him in all that we do. There should be a healthy amount there. All of us who have believed have entered God's rest. That's what I was talking about earlier. There's a sense in which that we have entered God's rest now, and there's another sense in the future consummation of that, the future eschatological rest, which is just future in heaven in simplified uh, terms. All of us have entered that rest, who have been adopted into the kingdom of God. We've, we must be united by faith in Christ so that we will ultimately persevere to the end, glorify God, and ultimately enter God's eschatological rest. We are there to do it together. Now let us continue in verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now this should give us a bit of a breath, excuse me, this should give us a bit of a breath of fresh air in this particular point, uh, for all those who have believed enter that rest, and if you believe and, adopt, and have been adopted into the family of God, we will, we will enter it. What the author of Hebrews is doing here in this particular point in, in his text is he is pointing us back to Genesis chapter 2. He's talking about God's rest, he's unpacking what that looks like, and he is pointing us, he's pointing his audience back to Genesis chapter 2, before the fall, before sin entered the world, he is pointing us to the rest that Adam and Eve had with God. The rest of God built everything, made everything in the first six days, and on the seventh day he rested, and that rest is open. That rest still is open to us today because it is today. And so what that looks like then with Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, they trusted in the Lord. They rested in his presence. They, they worked through the land. They weren't just chilling. They were working the land. Work is a pre-fall um, command institution, whatever you want to call it. It's pre-fall. They were, they were with God there. They rested in his presence. They trusted him. And then they sinned. And then they didn't. And then they rebelled, right? And then sin entered into the world, and that relationship was severed. And then at that point, that's where all of this unfolds. The Old Testament unfolds as we have been seeing over and over in preaching through the Old Testament and now in back in Hebrews, the cohesiveness of the Old Testament and the New Testament leading us to Christ and then now Christ's eventual return is all cohesive here. And so that's what the author's doing is pointing us back to the pre-fall rest with um, Adam and Eve. So pick it, let's pick it back up in verse six and hopefully this will start to clarify itself as we go. Verse 6 says this, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not 
excuse me. God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Again, we come back to Psalm 95. Here the author is quoting Psalm 95 multiple times. So what is Psalm 95? It's important, again, I encourage you to read Numbers 14 earlier today. If you want to read some more, read Psalm 95 as well, if you haven't already done so, maybe last week. But Psalm 95, David wrote Psalm 95, and he is, in a sense, interpreting what happened in the, in the wilderness, on the edge, in the rebellion that we talked about, where they rebelled against God before they went into the promised land. David is talking about that and going through it. The author of Hebrews is quoting him. And then at the end, it, it talks about the rest. So what he's doing, this is where, again, there's a lot of interpretation happening here, right? What David was doing when he wrote Psalm 95 is equating Israel entering the land of promise, going into the promised land. David then said at the end of Psalm 95 about rest, okay? That rest wasn't explicitly mentioned that I, at least that I'm aware of, in Numbers 14. But David, years later, then by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he was carried along, wrote about them, about Israel entering God's rest in the land of promise. And that is what we see here, the Sabbath rest that they will enter eventually in the future. That is where they are going. Next, David is saying today in Psalm 95 to his readership at that point in time, it says, so many years after David said today in Psalm 95, the today is getting at the fact that we can still enter the rest of God. We can still enter his rest. Today is the day. Again, the sense of urgency. It's not tomorrow. It's not the next day. It's not next month. It's not next year. It's today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's urgent. Today. The generation in the wilderness, didn't, they didn't do it, and they didn't finally enter God's rest. If you were with us last fall, we preached through Joshua, and we saw that kind of over and over again as we preached through it. They didn't finally and fully enter the rest in the land. They did take the land. They did take the turf. But they did not fully enter the land in the way that it was talked about. That's the day to come later on that the text is talking about. That is what we're still waiting for now. They entered the land, yes, but they didn't. what that was supposed to signify, what was supposed to happen there, is they would enter his rest, they would enter the land of promise. It would be their salvation, so to speak, that they would be in um, communion with the Lord, that they would, their relationship with the Lord would be right, that they would follow the commandments of the Lord, that they would love him, that they would follow him, and that they would um, experience rest in him in the land of promise. But they didn't do it, as we saw, as, as we saw earlier, as we've seen plenty of other times when you read the Old Testament, they failed to do it. They needed a savior. They needed their hearts to be tore out, their hearts of stone and a heart of flesh to be put in. They needed the Messiah, which he came. Praise be to God that he came because we as the church absolutely need Christ. We do absolutely need him. And that's again where the urgency comes from. Both for the unbeliever, the urgency remains and both for the believer, the urgency remains. And we'll see that again more as we continue to move through that we must rest in God today, not tomorrow. Again, as I was mentioning with them entering the land, Joshua is introduced here in verse 8. And so that might seem a little, uh, you know, like that just came out of nowhere. But when we unpack it, it doesn't. So they were supposed to enter the land that signified salvation and rest with God. But Israel did not keep the law and ultimately as a nation did not have faith in God. So that never happened. And so, again, okay, I already said that, all that. Al Mohler put it this way. This is what I was trying to get to. Al Mohler put it this way. I think it should be on the screen. Joshua led Israel into the land, but Jesus leads his people into God's true eschatological rest. 
I'll read that one more time. Joshua led Israel into the land, but Jesus leads his people into God's true eschatological rest. Again, that word eschatological is looking to the future, is looking to heaven, looking to Christ's return, looking to the last things. That's kind of what that's getting at. It's that future sense of God's rest that's going to be finally and fully realized. And so what we come to here is the already but not yet kind of concept that we, we talked about a lot in Luke. If you're with us uh, way back when we preached through Luke, we talked about it a lot. But what that essentially means is the kingdom of God has already come, that Christ has come, and that we are his, we've been adopted into his kingdom, but it's not yet fully realized. It's not yet fully, um, you know, come about in the way that it's going to eventually in the last days. We see that with our sin, we see that with everything here, it, we see it visually with our life, but that's where that's coming in, that's where we're getting that here as well, is the already but not yet concept. So just as Joshua was supposed to lead Israel into the land, he didn't, but what ultimately is going to happen is Christ then led, brought it about God's true eschatological rest. And so that's where we're going to get, we're going to start unpacking the application part of this. The author put that at the end, and that's what we're about to unpack now. So let's look at verse 11, and let's get to it. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, before we look at verse 11, I'm sure many of you have read or heard uh, verse 12 and 13. Maybe you saw it on a coffee mug or a poster or something. And that's, it is a really important verse that we'll unpack uh, but the context here is key, especially if you've heard it before. We, we must pay attention to why those two verses are here. And so in verse 11, notice where it says, let us therefore strive. Let us therefore, in light of what we just talked about, strive to enter God's rest. Strive. It's an action word, right? Remember I mentioned earlier, rest isn't us go chill on the beach or go do nothing. There, there is an active rest here in the Lord. There is an action that we are supposed to partake in. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. We must strive, church, to enter God's rest. Now, one thing I do want to make sure that we are clear on with this, with the striving to enter God's rest, is that is not saying, I'm not saying, the author of Hebrews is not saying, that we must strive to enter God's rest, meaning that we have to strive and earn our salvation. That is not what I'm saying. That is not what Hebrews is saying. It is not, a, it's not earning your salvation in, in the striving, in the action. It's not earning it. It's out of who I am in Christ, who you are in Christ as a son or daughter of God. Out of that, out of who you are, you then act and you strive to enter God's rest. Now again, we've talked about the future and the present here of rest, okay? So as we strive, we are, you can look at it either, either way. Either you're striving to go to the future, to the future eschatological rest in God, in Christ forever. And if you do that, what you're going to do ultimately is rest in God presently because that is what we're supposed to do as we live our life in uh, pursuit of the Lord. So either way there, so clarifying point, you can't earn your salvation. I'm not saying that. Hebrews isn't saying that. The striving is an action out of who you are in Christ already, not as a means to earn anything because we cannot earn our salvation. We are totally depraved. So I just want to make sure we're very clear on that before we go anywhere else in this passage. So what do we do? Okay, what, what do we do now, right? So if we, are, if we are to strive, if we are to work, in a sense, to rest, in our relationship with the Lord, how do we, how do, we do that? Well, what tools, what weapons, what, what do we have to make that a, a reality? What do we have? What did God tell us to do? Well, in verse 12, let's pick it back up in verse 12 because he gives it to us, the author, right after this. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his side, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes 
naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The word of God will protect us from disobedience. The word of God will absolutely pierce all of us as deep as it can go, as anything can go, no matter how hard-headed we can be or stubborn, the word of God will expose who we truly are on the inside, regardless of how much we try to hide what that looks like. The word of God will pierce through us. The word of God is our weapon that we will use to combat disobedience. Look at the end of verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Well, we strive to enter that rest, why? So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And that's where the word of God comes in. That's where we have a weapon to combat disobedience. We have a weapon to combat temptations of unbelief that we all are going to have. God has given it to us. It will expose us. The Bible literally says, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I don't want to hit this too hard because it is, you know, naked and exposed. But if you really think about it, hopefully none of us have been naked and exposed except for when we were a baby, right? That's a pretty serious thing to be naked and exposed. But this is saying the word of God is going to make that happen. It, we are all going to be naked and exposed before the Lord to whom we must give an account. We're going to give an account and there's no hiding anything. None of us. Our sin, our disobedience, our unbelief, or whatever it is, it's, it's going to come about. There is no hiding it before the Lord. That is how sharp the word of God is. And so this, again, brings us back to the urgency of the message and the fear of the Lord. Because all of us are going to struggle with sin. All of us have sins that we've probably struggled with for a long time. All of us have sins that are going to come about that maybe we haven't struggled with before. As we go through life, as we live, as we get older, all of those things are going to come about. That we have to fight those sins. And we fight with the word of the Lord. We're all going to struggle to obey. There's going to be times when we're going to know that we're supposed to obey the Lord and we're not going to do it. Or we're not going to want to do it. But we are called to obey. The word of God will speak to that and cut through it. We all at times are going to have a hard time to trust in the Lord, to trust in his goodness, to trust that he is in control and that he is not out to crush you for the sake of crushing you. He loves you and wants what's best for you and he is good. And there's going to be times where it's going to be really hard to see that, especially when difficult life circumstances come about. It is going to be hard to see at times, but that's where the word of the Lord comes in. It's going to pierce us to the heart. It's going to expose our unbelief is going to expose where we're having a hard time having faith and trusting. That is going to be our guardian there. The next part with this is how, so what do we do, right? We all have sin. We all have uh, difficulty obeying at times. We all have these things going on that we need to combat. And we're going to do it with the word of the Lord. But the next part of that, and we talked about it some last week with, uh, when Gabe preached at the end of chapter 3, we as the body of Christ are here to ultimately use and, and speak the word of the Lord to each other to ultimately persevere to the end. It is a means that God has put in place, and we're going to see it throughout Hebrews, that we as the body of Christ are there to help exhort, encourage, rebuke one another with the word of the Lord to help us ultimately persevere to the end and be saved. It's a means. We together are in this together. We are a family of God, and we must come together to do that, to exhort one another, to rebuke, to encourage with the word of the Lord. We are here for each other to finish the race. So in all of our struggles, in all of our you know, difficulty trusting in God, we are there for each other with the word of the Lord to help remind each other of what it says. That is how we're going to get through this. That's how we're going to get through this thing called life. That's how we're going to get through the race that Paul talks about that he finished and he fought the fight, which is what we want to say when we get to the end. Whether that's 80 years from now, 100 years from now, or four minutes from now, 
we want to say we got to the end. And we're going to do that with each other, and we're going to do it through the word of the Lord. We're, going to do, we're doing it right now with the preaching of the word, with this, the singing of praises to the Lord, and this entire worship service that we have on Sundays. We do it at family group together as we meet to read the word, to pray, to discuss, to remind each other of what it says, and to unpack diff, you know, difficult passages together. We do it at family reunion, coming together, bringing the family of God together to have a meal, to get to know each other better, to strengthen those relationships, to build new relationships, and then to hear teaching that we're going to have as we continue to go forward. We do it again in life where we just meet to you know, blow leaves or to work on something at the house or whatever it is you're doing, go out to dinner. We do it there with each other too and help encourage each other along with the word. And also husbands do it with their wives and their families as the spiritual leader of the home helping their family move through life and to be encouraged in the word so that we will obey, that we will be faithful, that we will trust in the promises of God and ultimately in doing so rest in God in all that we do, that we will enter his rest now in the present and ultimately in the future uh, when it is finally and fully realized. Martin Luther, in 1500, early 1500s, I don't remember exactly when he said it, he had this uh, kind of illustration, so to speak, of looking at a ship, one of the big ships, if you remember 1492, Columbus sailed across and I wanna say found America, I know it was already here, but you know, he found America, discovered it. And so 30 years-ish later, Martin Luther is looking at one of the big ships that is supposed to be able to sail across the ocean and he said, there's a difference between looking at this massive ship and saying, yeah, that, that can make it across the ocean. Yeah, it looks good. You know, got a big old sail up there. Got the, you know, it's not leaking. It doesn't look like, which is, you know, you don't want to get on a leaky boat. That'll not end well. Yeah, good, good to go. Got the mental thumbs up there. There's a difference between that and saying, yes, that thing can sail across the ocean. Now I'm going to step on it and we're going to go for, we're going to go for a ride. There's a difference. There's a difference between a mental, yeah, I got it, there's some facts there. You know, Jesus was there, he did some stuff, cool. There's a difference between that and actually saying, no, I'm, I'm getting on this ship. I believe that it's going to make it. I trust in it. I'm not only giving the mental thumbs up, but I truly trust in it and I'm putting everything out there to go and do it. There's a big difference. Just as for us, as we conclude, as we finish, usually we say as we land the plane, but I guess this morning as we finish our swim, that um, we come to this crossroads, right? We've, we've looked at God's rest and what that looks like today, what that's gonna look like in the future. We said that looks like trusting in the promises of God. So I want to leave, it, leave you with this, that as believers, we are there for each other with the word to combat disobedience, to combat sin, to combat all these different things. We are there for each other with the word. We must do that. And that as we do that, we will ultimately encourage one another to, to enter God's rest, to stay in God's rest, to strive after being in God's rest, and then ultimately finish the race. Finish the race and keep the faith. For non-believers in the room, you haven't entered God's rest. And so I'd like to implore you to enter God's rest. And if you have questions about that, I would love to talk to you after. We're so glad that you're here. But it is so very important. Again, the urgency remains for us as believers and for those who do not believe as well, although a little bit differently. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you so much for this time that we were able to go through Hebrews. Father, I pray that all of us will have an understanding of what it looks like to enter your rest, to enter ultimately for all of us who are believers, to rest in you, to trust you, to trust in your promises, to know that you are good and to, and to actually trust that they are good and to step out in faith uh, in that in our life. Help us, Lord, to rest in you. Help us, Lord, uh, with all the things that we have going on in life with work, with school, with sin, with disobedience, with various other things. Help us to identify that. Help us to come together as a family of God to bring the word to each other in a loving and compassionate way to encourage us to rest in you, to trust you, 
to just rely on you for all things and not on our own will, our own strength, our own volition. Help us, Lord, to grow in our love for you and desire to faithfully obey you and what you've called us to do. And I pray, Father, that you will be honored and glorified this morning as we go out from here. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Become more aware of your presence. 
Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Let us become Was a ransom. 